you have your Bibles with you, open them to John chapter 2. So we've made it through the first chapter, taking small chunks, taking large chunks. The first chapter to John's gospel is basically composed of two separate things, a prologue and an introduction. And the prologue was from verses 1 to 18 of that first chapter, and basically it was sort of a a concise and particular summary of all of the themes that run through the gospel of John. The introduction then from verses 19 to the end of the chapter was a way to sort of introduce the backstory of who Jesus was and how he came on the scene and how he gathered his first disciples. From chapter 2 through the end of the book, we have two major divisions that we're going to be dealing with. Scholars have helpfully called these the book of signs and the book of glory. The first section is the book of signs from chapters 2 through chapter 11, and it consists of seven miracles, which John calls signs. These miracles are meant to show us, to tell us something about Jesus. These are not simply meant to point us to the fact that Jesus was a miracle worker, but to point us further than simply the miracles themselves to what the miracles are supposed to signify. So there's a a difference then between the sign and the signified. The sign is the miracle, but what does the miracle tell us about Jesus? And that's what John is getting at. He wants us to see not just the signs themselves, but he wants us to see the signified behind it. So, For instance, if you were to approach a stoplight or you were to approach a traffic light, that traffic light has three signs on it, typically, red, yellow, and green. But we don't realize or we don't think of them as simply red, yellow, and green. We think of the information that they tell us. They think not of the sign, but of what they're supposed to signify. So if it's green, you go through the intersection. If it's yellow, you go through the intersection faster. If it's red, you think about stopping and hopefully stop, right? So... It's not just the sign that we're interested in, it's the signified as well. This is, again, one of those major passages in understanding this is John chapter 6, verses 26 and 27. After John reports that Jesus feeds the 5,000, he goes to the other side of the lake. Those people follow him around to the other side of the lake, clearly trying to follow him, clearly believing in him in some form or fashion. And Jesus tells them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. For them, the whole purpose was the sign. It was the bread. But they didn't ask what the significance of Jesus being able to provide bread for them really was. What did it say about Christ? So there are seven signs. The second chapters, or the second section of the Gospel of John, occurs in chapters 12 through the end. And it is the book of glory, and it centers around Jesus leading his disciples, praying for his disciples, teaching his disciples about his glory and the glory that was to come on the cross and on the resurrection and the ascension. Today we begin the first of these miracles, the first of these signs. So if you would, read with me in chapter 2 as we read the first 11 verses. On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. 
And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of our Lord. Today we have the first of the seven miracles that we are going to speak of in this book of signs. And to be honest, it is an incredibly strange miracle. It's an incredibly strange miracle. Now, honestly, turning water into wine isn't that strange of a thing. I mean, we don't see it every day, but you can imagine that this is something that would come up at some point in time to change food into something else or whatever the case might be. So it's not, it's not strange. He didn't change the water into a puppy or something like that, but it's, it's strange that John would include it. So if you were going to pick seven incredibly important signs, seven important miracles to explain the nature and the purpose and the person of Jesus Christ to people, Jesus extending a party doesn't seem like the one that you would choose. He could have picked any of a number of things. There's healings. He could have picked a different kind of healing. He could have picked an exorcism. And the rest of the Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus exercises demons. And I don't mean he gets them to do jumping jacks. I mean he pulls them out of people, right? They possess people and he, he pushes them out. He eliminates them from these poor people who have them entrapped inside of them. And John doesn't have any of them. Why not drop one of them in here? It's strange. Given how the the book ends, the final verse of the book in John 21, 25, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So why? Out of all of those miracles, out of all of those deeds, out of all the things that John could have put in here for the first of his miracles, to report the first of these miracles, why this? What is the significance of changing water into wine? First, let us be very clear that this miracle, in this miracle, we see that Jesus' glory is expressed. His glory is expressed. It is manifested. Now, we don't want to talk about things that are unnecessary, and we don't want to talk about things that are controversial just because they're controversial. But when we talk about this particular miracle, it is impossible to talk about it intelligently without speaking about the use of alcohol. Because Jesus makes water, which is perfectly drinkable, into wine. He could have just made dirty water into clean water, but he didn't do that. He made it into wine. Given... The testimony and the events that surrounded Judge Kavanaugh's committee hearing, and given the central role that alcohol played in all of those allegations, I think it's wise to have people stand up and to start to say, maybe we should think about beginning a conversation about the difficulties and the, the danger of alcohol in our country. So let's at least take a little bit of time to to think through how the Bible presents alcohol. First, it presents it negatively in a great many circumstances. It can be harmful and dangerous. Habakkuk 2.5 Moreover, Habakkuk says, wine is a traitor 
an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he never has enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects him, them as his own peoples. Drink, specifically wine, can lead quickly to sin. Romans 13, 13 through 14. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Paul says in Ephesians 5.18, don't get drunk with wine. Furthermore, alcohol is associated with sin. In Revelation 17 and Revelation 18, we have the great prostitute standing in front of all the nations. And John tells us that she made the nations drunk with her prostitution. They drank of her. All of the worldly desires that they had, they drank of her and they were drunk. And the image there is that they became so intoxicated by the world that they were stupid and couldn't tell the glory of God that was about to be revealed to them. So therefore, it is also a picture of God's wrath, drunkenness is, and wine is. Jeremiah 25, 15, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, He said to me, Take from my hand this cup of wine of wrath, and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. In Revelation 14, 9-10, the same imagery is picked up. Another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image, and receives a mark on his forehead or his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Jesus is said to drink God's cup of wrath for us. Wine Specifically, wine. Now, they knew of beer, they knew of strong drink, but wine seems to be the prototypical alcoholic drink in the Bible. Wine is pictured very negatively, but it is also pictured very positively. It is a symbol of joy and gladness. Joel 2.19 and then 23 and 24. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied. I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the later rain, as before. The threshing floors shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. It is therefore a symbol of God's favor. In Jeremiah 31, 12. The Lord has ransomed Jacob and has redeemed him from the hands too strong for him. He's talking about bringing his people back from exile. He has dis dispelled and dispersed his people around the nations and he is now bringing them back. They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion and they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, the oil, over the young of the flock and the herd. And their life shall be like watered garden. They shall languish no more. The flowing of wine is a sign of God's good favor, and the absence of it is frequently a sign of God's cursing. Jeremiah, again, 48, 33. Gladness and joy have been taken away from the fruitful land of Moab. I have made the wine cease from the wine presses. No one treads them with shouts of joy. The shouting is not the shout of joy. The removal of wine from people is seen as a curse by God. Its presence is seen as a symbol of God's favor. 
Not to mention, the Bible talks about it as though it has medicinal qualities. Paul tells Timothy to continue to take not just water, but water and wine for his ailing stomach. In other words, the Bible speaks both positively and negatively about wine, just like it does a variety of different issues, including things like sex. It speaks both positively and negatively of it. Because it is both positive and negative, and because people feel strongly in one way or the other, the debate is sometimes quite heated. People would argue that you shouldn't do it. You should never take it, and you should be a teetotaler. And they say this because you're messing with something dangerous that is unnecessary. They, they talk rightly about having concerns for brothers and sisters who might feel as though you are leading them into sin by seeing you drink. This is the same discussion that Paul had with meat in the first century. Listen, and, and there is no, no way to speak about alcohol without speaking of the unnecessary death that it brings upon nations. An estimated 88,000 people die from alcohol-related causes annually. That is the third highest, the third highest of preventable, disease, preventable deaths is related to alcohol. In 2012, 3.3 million deaths, or 6%, 5.9% of all global deaths were attributable to alcohol consumption. It's not an undangerous thing. But many people would turn around and say, Jesus drinks, the disciples drink. The Bible never actually forbids it. And Jesus is seen here in this passage making water into wine. And not just grape juice. Listen, any, any Southern Baptists do this every once in a while, they say it's great. It's not grape juice. Like, he's making water into wine. The, the headmaster takes it, puts it in his mouth, and he says, this is not just wine, it's good wine. Right? This is, regardless of the alcohol content of this, people say, well, it's really only 5%. For those of you who don't know your alcohol, that, that would be like a beer, okay? So beer, much less alcohol content. They cut their wine with water, and they say, well, it was just lower alcohol content. Listen, people were getting drunk. The ESV wrongly says, when people have freely drunk. That's not what the word means. It means when people get drunk, then you bring out the bad wine. So, it was alcoholic enough to get drunk. Proverbs 31, 4 through 7 does this really well. It gives us both sides of this picture. Listen to how well, as Proverbs almost always does, it doesn't tell us exactly what we ought to believe, but it leads us to think through these things in wisdom. Listen to this. It is not for kings, O Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to take strong drink lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of all the affected. So it's clear that memory and decision-making are harmed by the taking in of wine. But Proverbs in the very next verse goes on to say this, Give strong drink to the one who is perishing, and wine to those in bitter distress. Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. So while it can create memory problems and, and make decisions harder, it is also a killer of pain and of sorrow. So this particular passage is important because this issue is important because it affects how we live in our everyday lives. But if all we are to take away from this passage is whether we are to drink or we are not to drink, whether we can take in alcohol or we can't, whether we can as part of our Christian liberty or we should abstain as part of our Christian responsibility, we have mismanaged this text horribly. John tells us 
the importance of this text is not in whether you should drink or whether you shouldn't drink, but he says it very clearly. Jesus manifested his glory. That is the point of the miracle. I don't think that I have ever heard anything about this passage in, in wider conversations outside of whether it proves or disproves, whether you have to come to it to make sure that people don't drink or you come to it freely to declare that you can drink. That, that's horrible. That's not what the passage is about. Jesus manifests. His, his goodness is known and his, his glory is expressed by this passage. And we can... We can rightfully use this passage to talk about whether we should drink or we shouldn't drink is an important issue, but that's not the first and foremost thing that it is here for. Jesus' glory is expressed, so how is it expressed? The second point, Jesus' graciousness is exhaustive. It is exhaustive. Cana is about nine miles north of Nazareth. We don't really know exactly how far away it is, but it's slightly north of Nazareth in the same region. And it appears as though both Jesus and his mom knew this family. So it was a fairly close town. His mother was invited, and it says Jesus was also invited, so likely a family friend inviting both of them. And that explains why Mary was so concerned that the wine had run out. She wasn't concerned because she was a nosy person. She was concerned because she was a family friend of this family. And wine running out at a marriage ceremony, and this day in age would have been the most devastating thing that probably could have happened to husband and wife. The groom was responsible to take care of this. The groom was responsible to make sure that there was enough wine there for the party. These celebrations could sometimes last a day up to a week. The fact that he ran out in a shame culture would have been incredibly shameful to him and it would have, been, it would have looked to the wider populace as though he was just slapping them in the face by running out of wine, that he didn't care about them and he didn't love them and he was not going out of his way to do everything that he could for them. It wasn't just sort of a minor social faux pas. This isn't running out of guacamole at a Super Bowl party. This is a major issue. It would have been humiliating. It would have brought a loss of standing in the community. And you have to remember, this isn't a loss of standing in Bay City. These are small, tight-knit communities. He would have never lived this down. It would have been humiliating to the point of devastation. And so Mary steps in and she says, Jesus, they're, they're out of wine. Jesus' response is very difficult to put into English. It, it, woman sounds much harder than it is, but there's really no good word he could use there. It certainly wasn't a term of endearment. And I think the ESV handles it well when they say, what does this have to do with me? This is not, in other words, my responsibility. You're coming to me and you're telling me this information. I know why you're telling me this information, but you need to know this is not my responsibility. And notice what he says after that. He says, my hour has not yet come. This is the first of nine instances where Jesus is going to talk about his hour. His hour is speaking of his glorification. He's saying, it's not time for me to reveal my glory to people. It's not time for me to demonstrate my glory to people. And continually throughout the Gospel of John, it changes from, I'm not going to show my glory. My glory hasn't come. My hour hasn't come to later in the Gospel when he says, after the Gentiles come and ask of him, he says, now my hour has come. It is my time to demonstrate my glory to the world primarily through the cross. But he says here, it's not time for that. It's not time for him to manifest his glory to people. Yet Mary takes this, which is 
at the very least, a very kind rebuke of her and says this, do whatever he tells you. Now, what John is saying is that this is the first of his miracles. I, I am not sure that that means it is the only miracle that he's ever done. Like, this is the very first one that he's ever done, or it means that this is the first one that he did outside of his, his family. Because Mary really, really does seem to know that something is up here, right? She didn't say, Jesus, can you go buy some more wine? She just said, servants, you do whatever he tells you to do. It seems to imply that Mary knows that something else is going on here. And by the way, after being rebuked, what a faithful response. If Jesus comes back, her son, and says, this has nothing to do with me and I'm not going to help, she doesn't keep begging him. She doesn't keep plugging him. She doesn't nag him into doing it. She says, okay, whatever Jesus does is best. Friend, that, that is just like Mary always does. Everywhere in the scriptures that Mary has spoken of, she has spoken of well. Every response she gives, she's spoken of well. And here, she has spoken of well. This is a great response. Think of that response. When Jesus tells you no, you say, okay, if that is what is best, that is what is best. Mary has had 30 years of learning that this boy always does what is best. So I will trust him. Jesus, out of kindness, decides that he will, in a very limited way, display his glory. So the people who seem to know about this are the servants and his disciples and no one else. It's clear that the headmaster doesn't know anything about it because John specifically tells us that. And it's clear, I think, that no one else finds out about it because John has nothing else written about it. This is the one miracle that just stops. There is no discussion. There's no sort of long explanation from Jesus about what's going on. It's just miracle and nothing else. The disciples believe, but that's it. So he decides that he will manifest his glory in a limited sense to people. Sign of his kindness. And he sees these six water jars and he says, fill them up. 20 to 30 gallons. I don't know if you can do the math. Times six, that's 120 to 180 gallons of wine. Now, if you know anything about wine circles and people who walk in wine circles, they have a term for this. It's a junk load of wine. That is a huge amount of wine. That's not a small amount, okay? And you've got to remember that the head waiter, when he explains this, he says, you start by giving the good wine and then you change to the bad wine. If the wine had run out, and they had already exhausted the good wine. That means that this is towards the end of the celebration. Jesus is giving them way more wine than they need. It is an overabundance, a superabundance of wine. He could have picked one jar and it would have been enough. He could have picked two to go way overboard, but he uses all of them, all six, and fills them up. Jesus has them take the water from the jar and he takes it to the master of the ceremony and he tastes it and he says, not only is it real wine, but it's real good wine as well. Let us think through how many ways Jesus is gracious in this act. Every single thing that Jesus does in this miracle, every single thing, even the symbolism of what he is doing is a sign of graciousness. First, he says very clearly he was not responsible. It was the groom's job to make sure that there was enough wine there. It is not his job to make sure the groom does his job, and it's not his job to do the groom's job when the groom doesn't do his job. And yet, what do we find? Jesus graciously does it, and then he doesn't even take credit for it. The head waiter, the headmaster, goes and he tells the groom, you've kept the good wine until now. The groom says, oh, 
don't know what you're talking about. He has, he has no idea. He, he, he fumbled around and failed in his responsibilities here. The fact that Jesus had no responsibility here and he makes it known that he has no responsibility here is clear evidence that he is doing this solely out of the graciousness of his heart. Not only that, but he says very clearly, my hour has not yet come, which typically means I'm not going to act in a way that will contravene what God's purposes and plans are. And yet, he goes against that in a very limited way so that he can be gracious to this man. Given that, he is gracious to his disciples. Jesus could have easily said, look, there is a vat full of wine and just had the vat filled with wine. But instead of doing that, he very clearly makes them fill the jars with water before he turns it into wine so that his disciples will see it and believe. Another gracious thing that he does. Again, the amount of wine. He, he doesn't say toward the end of the celebration, I'm going to make you a little bit of wine and you're going to deal with it, right? I'm going to help you out a little bit, but you need to know the pain of what you've done, groom. You need to feel at least a little bit of embarrassment. He doesn't do that. He gives them a huge amount of wine. Not only that, but he gives them the best wine. He doesn't give them wine that's just sort of okay. The headmaster doesn't take this and say, that'll suffice. It's so good that he has to go and talk to the groom about the goodness of the wine. It's not just the amount of wine, it's the quality of the wine. And again, we've talked about what wine symbolizes. It symbolizes joy and gladness. It is Christ who is making people happy. It's clear that he's doing this to help people, to provide them goodness. And frankly, the symbolism of what he does in changing water into wine, which he doesn't need to do. He can manufacture wine from nothing. It's no harder to make wine out of nothing than it is to change water into wine. But instead, what does he do? He takes purification jars, symbolizing the ritual ways in which people under the Mosaic Covenant have to keep themselves clean before God, and he fills them up to the brim, symbolizing that the law is now fulfilled, and without a doubt, takes people back to thinking about Moses, who did this exact same thing. But what did Moses change the water to? The first of his miracles, by the way. What did he do? He changed it into blood, not Christ. Moses changed water into destruction, and he changed water into judgment, but Christ changes water into grace. It is the anti-plague to come upon the people. This is, this is not a picture of like that minimalist French restaurant where you get a scallop and a little dollop of like orange stuff on it and asparagus, right? And they're like, here's your $85 dinner. And you're like, okay, KFC after this, right? So we, we sometimes see God's grace and we think of it in, in terms of it's small and we get bits and pieces and, and we, we're just allowed enough gas in our engine to get us through the next day. Everything that Christ does here is overly gracious. It is overly kind. His graciousness is exhaustive. It, it fills up the water jars to their capacity with good things. Not okay things, but with good things. The symbolism behind it screams of his kindness and his graciousness to everyone. He doesn't measure out grace by teaspoons, but by gallons. 
he is gracious. And therefore, thirdly, his kingdom is exhibited. While Jesus' great graciousness is at the forefront of the miracle, there are other implications that are gleaned from the nature of the miracle that we just, just can't overlook. The miracle itself honestly reads more like a parable or an allegory than anything else. Just like any of the other miracles, we naturally read ourselves in this miracle. Just like the man who is lame by the pool, we think of ourselves as being lame by the pool and being healed by Jesus. The man who is born blind, we think of ourselves being given sight by Jesus. Just as the people are fed in the wilderness, we are to think. Jesus tells us, if you understand this right, you are to be thinking of yourselves as being fed by me. Even as we read of Lazarus being raised, we think of ourselves being raised. That's why Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. You are meant to read the Gospel of John this way. You are meant to read the Gospel of John as though you are the groomsman. You failed in your responsibility. Because you failed in your responsibility, what is the result of that? It is sin, and what is the result of sin? It is destruction. And one of the pictures of destruction, as we've talked about in the Old Testament, is nothing less than the absence of wine. Joel 1, 9 through 11. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn the ministers of the Lord. The fields are destroyed. The ground mourns because the grain is destroyed. The wine dries up and the oil languishes. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. Your sin means that you have no gladness. You don't have gladness because there is no wine. But Jesus comes to one who is undeserving, and what does he do? He gives him what he needs to make him happy and joyful. He gives him wine. This, too, is prophesied in the Old Testament. The same passage that we read this morning, that Pastor Richard read, Isaiah 25, 6-8. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow and of aged wine well-refined. He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all the peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. The provision of God's final salvation is filled with food and wine. It is rich and it is abundant. Amos 9, 13 through 14, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. Realize, realize that when they made grapes, when they harvested grapes back in the day, they didn't make that to put them in little uh, bags that you can then stick under the faucet, rinse off, and then eat. They, they harvested grapes to make wine. And he says, so abundant, so abundant will it be that the people who squash the grapes to make the wine will be overtaking the people who are planting them. There will be no end to the cycle of making more wine and making more wine. It will flow freely. God's goodness has come back to Israel. Salvation is here. So Jesus, no matter how furtively, no matter how quietly, is announcing the coming of the promised kingdom. This is, he says, the coming of the new kingdom. There was no wine. God had cut this man off and I am providing him wine. The kingdom of God has come back. The times of joy and of celebration and of gladness and of happiness have come to his people. 
This is symbolized all the more in the Lord's Supper. This is why Jesus provides us with a meal that is his body and his blood. It is blood that is joy and celebration. That's why he gives us a cup of wine, not of destruction, but of happiness. This is why we call it the Eucharist. It is, it is the Lord's Supper, but it is meant to be a celebration. Even the nature of the miracle speaks about the kind of kingdom that Jesus has. He has completely changed something that was not into something that was. This matches well. The last miracle that we get, the very last sign that we get, Lazarus was not alive and Jesus made him alive. Water is not wine and Jesus made it into wine. This is the nature of his kingdom. He takes that which is not and he makes it into that which is. He takes that which is sorrowful and, and wretched and turned away and turns it into something that is lovely and beloved by God. The kingdom provides abundance while the world only provides need. Jesus' kingdom provides goodness where the world provides nothing but failure. His kingdom provides joy while the world can provide you only sorrow. The kingdom provides life where there would be death and provides you health where there would be disease. This is the nature of the kingdom of God. It is gracious. It is overflowing. This is a small picture, but it is not the only picture. In Revelation 16, we have another marriage. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Friend, it is those who are invited who see the sign of this miracle, not for what it says about alcohol, but for what it says about Jesus. It shows his graciousness. It shows his kingdom, and it demonstrates fully his glory. Seeing that, understanding that, and being brought near to Christ by that, that is what makes you ready for the marriage supper of the Lamb. When those people ate bread in John chapter 6, Jesus warns them not to want the bread that simply fills them for the day, but want the bread that will, that will provide for them eternal life. And I tell you, friend, you can read this passage today and you can think that it means that you are okay to drink as much wine as you want outside of getting drunk, and I don't really care about that, but I do care about this. If you are consumed with drinking wine that will quench you and make you glad and happy for a day, you are, you are a fool. There is wine to be had that will make you happy for eternity. This wine is nothing less than the blood of Jesus Christ. So trust in the provision of Christ for your sins. Trust that he is gracious to you, that even in your sin, his ability in who he is can overcome any of your sin. You can be forgiven and you can be restored. Trust in the glory that is present here. Trust in the grace that is present here. Trust in the goodness that is present here. For that same glory, grace, and goodness are present in everything he does. So please, understand this miracle is more than just an excuse to extend a party. It isn't that. 
And it's placed in our Bibles for more than just fodder about whether or not we should drink alcohol. Rather, it is here to express the glory of God and the work of Jesus Christ. And it, this miracle is a wonderful demonstration of the overflowing kindness of Jesus Christ, the graciousness of Jesus Christ, the glory of Jesus Christ, and the kind of kingdom that Jesus Christ is king over. So don't get lost when you read this passage and be concerned about whether or not it's right to drink, but rather follow the Apostle Paul's advice in 1 Corinthians 10. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, may we desire in everything that we do to give you glory. May any conversation about our rights or our responsibilities, our license from you and our freedom from you, for you. Father, may, may these, these things not be held in such high regard that we forget to speak of our responsibility to give you glory in all things. Let us be grateful for the good gifts that you give to us. Let us never think that you give them small or that you give them without being the best. Father, you make good things. You do good things. May we be reminded today of how kind and how good you are. May we respond with Mary's response and say, whatever you will, be done in our lives. In all things, Father, as your Son and your Spirit work in us, may that work reveal your glory, and may we give you the glory that you are due. We pray for this, for the good of your people, for the glory that is only found in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.